Take your Bibles and we're going to read the Word of God together. We're going to go back and we're going to talk about lessons from the Lord, the lad, and his lunch. I suppose one of the most well-known episodes in the life of Jesus is the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to talk about that together this morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house. Let's stand like we do and let's read this little passage together. Verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6. And let's read beginning now. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, how many of you, you uh, many of you went to church and Sunday school when you were young and you have seen many illustrations done and you, <laughs> you've heard Sunday school teachers try to illustrate this. How many of you seen that a whole lot in your life? I have too. What I was going to do today, I, since it was family Sunday, we got a lot of kids in the service. I was going to let the kids participate. I looked all over the city of Des Moines, worked as hard as I could to find little packets of two packs of crackers. I was going to have them come and participate. So kids, I worked at it, but I couldn't get it done because, you know, supply line problems. And so I couldn't find enough of them. What I did find is I did find some fish. And uh, I have right here kipper snacks. They are smoked herring. And I'm going to do you all a favor and not open these in the auditorium. <laughs> but they are just about the size of the two small fish. They were something very similar that is in the Sea of Galilee. And uh, what a story it is. Did you know that this story, this episode of the feeding of the 5,000, other than the crucifixion and resurrection, is the only miraculous story that is told in all four gospels. Just this one. This is a quadruple important story. And we're going to look at it together today. I'm so glad you're here. Let's just bow our heads for prayer. Father, would you add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word? Would you be among us and with us? We know you're here. We just pray that by your spirit, Lord, those that are listening would be encouraged, even anointed so that they would understand that they play an enormously important part 
in the kingdom of God. Thank you so very much. Thank you that I have the privilege of preaching and teaching once again from this passage. Bless us now in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So you had a little listening guide there. And uh, uh, you can write some of those things down if you want. So we come now to this fourth sign of the Savior in today's passage. In chapter 5, Jesus gave some reasons to believe in him. Uh, in his discourse, he, got a, he gave a big teaching session after he had healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. When he did it, he did it on a Sabbath. And so it started a firestorm with the Jewish leaders because he broke their version of the Sabbath. And we talked about that. The Jewish leaders understood something very clearly, and we emphasized it, as did Pastor Matt last week. Uh, he was claiming equality with God, saying by everything he did and said that he was indeed equal with God. He had power to resurrect the dead. He had power and authority to judge all mankind. Pastor Matt beautifully showed us four major reasons to believe that Jesus gave, and he called up some witnesses. There was the witness of John the Baptist. Uh, who they believed at the first. There were the works that he was doing, these miracles, these prodigies that he was doing. Uh, they gave witness that the only the prophesied Messiah would do those kind of things. And then he, the witness of the father himself, at least on two occasions, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then uh, we talked about the witness of the scriptures themselves. Jesus said that from Moses to Malachi, everything in here is about him. He told those disciples on the road to Emmaus that day that everything was written about him. What did they do with it? What did these Jewish leaders do with it? Well, they didn't believe. They didn't care about what God was doing. They only cared about themselves and their own position and power. Now, Jesus last week in the last sign establishes a new format in the way he does the signs. He's establishing a pattern. The pattern that he established is this, first the miracle, then the message. The miracle is the platform, and the message is what he wants to say about it. He performed the sign, then he taught the meaning. He made the application. Now, clue in now, cue in and clue in to what I'm going to say right now. Sadly then, in that day, sadly, like today, people were happy to receive the signs, but they did not care for the teaching. They didn't want the teaching, they wanted the bread. They didn't want the speaking and the preaching and the teaching about the kingdom of God and that he was the king and he had arrived. No, no, no. No, they, they wanted to be healed. And this is what it was all about. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, my words are life. That's John 6, 63. He did never said my miracles are life. He never said that. He said, my words are life. We are born again by the word of God, by the washing of and renewal of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration. This is how we're born again. The word of God gives us life. My words are life. Every healing, every feeding, every sign that Jesus did was temporary. You understand that? Even Lazarus died after he was raised from the dead. Every healing, every resurrection, whatever it was, whatever sickness, whatever, whatever malignity that he helped them with, they all still died. It wasn't permanent. It was temporal. <laughs> but what we're talking about today is something altogether different. His words give life and it never ends and after this particular sign, the feeding of the 5,000, he is going to give another discourse. We're going to be in this chapter for a few weeks on the bread of life. Now, this miracle that we're looking at today has to do with food. And, you know, I'm kind of that guy that likes food. 
Does anybody in here just hate food? I just, I've always, you know, people always say, well, he's a guy, he really likes to eat. Well, I've never have met anybody that just hates all food. But I really like food. And this is a food month. We got a little deal coming up toward the end of the month, you know, Thanksgiving. And uh, in Thanksgiving, we are going to be all about what we're going to be eating and in fellowshipping and with family and friends that day. All diets kind of go out the window at Thanksgiving. I can just see it now. I'm going to describe my ideal. Here it is. I can just see it. Turkey, cornbread dressing, giblet gravy. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say giblet gravy? Raise your hand. See, there are some saved people in this crowd. I knew there were. Giblet gravy, homemade rolls, mashed potatoes, candied yams, green bean casserole, three bean salad, and so much more. And I can see the pies. Cherry pie, and then there's cherry pie with Cool Whip. And then there's cherry pie with ice cream. I've heard there are other pies, but there's cherry, you know. So here's the deal. <laughs> My wife can really cook, but I've come to find out something. I can eat on Thanksgiving until I'm nearly foundered, and I'm still hungry the next day. Isn't that a strange thing? How many of you always get hungry the day after Thanksgiving? I do. I, I'm always hungry the next day. It's just the way it is. The truth is, is that Bonnie, no matter how well she can cook, she can't give me one meal that is going to perpetually fill me up and satisfy. But you know what? Jesus does give out food that completely satisfies. That's what it's about. It fills us up to overflowing and it keeps filling us up. And to know Jesus is a continual feast. I, 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 if for no other reason, we ought to share Jesus with people because they don't know what they're missing. It's wonderful. How many of you are glad that you know Jesus as your savior today? Can you just say amen? I'm so thankful to know him as my savior. And you know what? We get to sit down at the savior's feet. We get to eat at his table of spiritual blessing. And we can also like this little boy stand up and serve everyone who is hungry for spiritual truth. Jesus uses us to do it. Now let's get our bearings here. Jesus has now left the sophisticated, educated crowd at Jerusalem. All the doctors and the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees, he's left them. Some of them follow him, but the biggest crowd of them he left. And he's returned to Galilee where the people there are more down to earth. They are about just getting by, finding food, having some sort of livelihood. In addition, Mark 6.31 says that Jesus and his disciples had had just a very busy time of teaching and helping and serving, and that they needed to head north so that they could come apart and rest a while and find some refreshment. Now, the likely place for this event that we're talking about today is what is today known as the Golan Heights. On the Sea of Galilee, the northeast part, near a city called Bethsaida, which happened to be the hometown of one of his disciples, Philip. And he's going to kind of zero in on Philip in just a little bit. Even though they went there to rest and to find a little bit of privacy, they could find none. His year of popularity is still great and his year of opposition has begun. But still, he is healing. He is casting out demons. He is changing people's lives. He is doing such a great thing and people are following him. That's what verses 1 and 2 tell us. So he sat down on the hillside to teach his disciples but no sooner did he get set down that the multitudes began to come because multitudes had needs. And I can just say it today, nothing has changed. Multitudes have needs. I was reading a book this week. It was written back in the 80s. It was talking about the missionary endeavor and talking about the fact that the, that the planet had just passed 5 billion people. Well, the planet has just passed, get this, 8 billion people now. And the missiologists tell us that more than 3.4 million of, billion, excuse me, 3.4 billion of them have never heard the name of Jesus. There are multitudes today. The passage mentions that the Passover feast was approaching. That's verse number four, I think. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. 
The passage mentioning that tells us that this happened in the spring of the year. So that explains why when they had them sat down, they sat on the green grass. A little later, there's going to be a feeding of 4,000 and there's no green grass. They sat right down on the dirt because it was in the fall of the year near the time of harvest. So these multitudes came because they had seen his healings. They came because they'd seen his miracles. They wanted more. Now, the disciples were there. The curious and the spectacle seekers were all there. The multitude also of needy people were there. Then there was the smaller group of religious inspectors, those scribes, Pharisees, and Jesus later would call them hypocrites. They were there and they wanted to check out everything that Jesus was doing and saying because they were building a case against him because as we already read a few weeks ago, they had decided to destroy him, to kill him. They weren't happy about people being raised from paralysis, eyes being open. They weren't happy about the good things he was doing. No, 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 no. They were worried about their power and their position. They weren't shepherds. They were power-hungry, money-hungry leaders in religious garb. There's a lot of that that goes on today as well. So what are we going to look at then in this episode? We're going to focus on the Lord and the lad and his lunch. So first of all, the Lord knew what he was going to do. Write that down, verses four to seven. Jesus was not surprised by that situation. He knew what he was going to do. In fact, he knew the multitude was going to come. He knew there was going to be a boy there with a lunch. He knew everything. Jesus knows everything. He's not surprised by our world situation today. He is not surprised at your situation today. And by the, no, when you, by the way, when you pray and tell the Lord about what's going on in your life, you're just bringing it to his attention that you're trusting him. You're not informing him of something that he does not know. He knows. He is not surprised by your situation. He knows every aspect of your problem and my problem. And here's what we know. We know that he has no limits. I can't help but think of Moses in the Old Testament. He had a food crisis moment. In the Old Testament, the people, uh, uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness had gotten tired of the manna, and they started complaining and bellyaching and talking about this honey, honey cake wafer that fell every day, that, which would supply every need that they had, and they were complaining and complaining, and they said, we want meat, we want meat, and so the Lord sent them meat, and how did he do it? Well, he sent in an east wind, and quail were blown in, and just enormous, enormous amounts of quail, so many that they ate it until it was coming out their nostrils, the Bible says. I'm not going to feed you a meal or for a day or a week. I'm going to feed you for a month. The only thing you're going to eat is this stuff. They loathed it after a while, of course, but when it was happening, Moses had his doubts. The Lord says, I'm going to bring meat to give to all of these people. And Moses said, are we going to slaughter all of the flocks and herds? Are we going to catch all of the fish of the sea? And the Lord answered him in Numbers eleven twenty three. The Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether I say what will happen to you will or not. There are many passages in the scripture that talk like that where the Lord reveals himself. I love the one in Luke uh, chapter 18 and verse 27, when it says, nothing is impossible for the Lord. How many of you believe that? Nothing is impossible for the Lord. We have to understand it. So the Lord knew what he would do. Now, here's what we do. What we like to do is we like to assess the situation. We assess the situation. Uh, Jesus put his disciples to the test and he picked on Philip a little bit because he was from the area and no doubt Jesus knowing everything knew that he had the calculations going on in his head. Philip was the calculating sort of a person. He was thinking about this and so 
Jesus said to him, hey, Philip, uh, where are we going to buy food to feed all these people? Well, Philip had been thinking about it, and he said, you know what? 200 denarii are not enough. That is, eight months' salary of a common laborer would not even put a bite in the mouth of everyone here. This is too much, Lord. We need to do something else. And so, in the, in the episode in Matthew and in Mark, the disciples at this point recommended that the Lord just send them away. Lord, this is too big. There's too many. Look at them. They just keep coming. There's more coming every minute. We need to do something different. You know, we, we actually have a commission that's been giving to, uh, given to us that seems far beyond anything we could do. Uh, we think about it the same way. We tend to look at the, uh, at the size of this. We assess the size of the situation. And so what do we do? We size up the situation and we think, help the needy, care for the downtrodden, make disciples to the end of the earth. And then the big one, teach them everything. I mean, the Great Commission is wonderful. It says, you know, go everywhere, baptize, teach, and these, you know, teach them. And then teach them everything. You say, what's that? Well, that's tall order. I mean, I've been working on it here for a number of years and I haven't taught you everything. We haven't taught everything. Teach them everything. It's a tall order. You say, well, it's impossible. Just send them away. Get somebody else to do it. Nope. Now, whatever the Lord has called us to do, he enables us to do. Whatever God wants from us, he enables us to do for him. It's so important. And so we're supposed to do it. It seems so big. They said, Lord, just send them away. We can't just dismiss what God has called us to do as people. We're supposed to evangelize to the ends of the earth. The next thing we do is after we size up the situation, then we size up the supplies. We size up the supplies. We can talk about how little we have and how little we can do. And we start comparing the size of the need with the scarcity of the supply on hand. We look in our pockets and we look in our cupboards and we look at, oh, it's just too much. That's exactly the situation that the disciples were in. So basically, Philip said, Jesus, look, let's get real here. There are way too many people and more arriving by the minute. We can't feed all of these people. And by the way, the Jewish custom was only to count the head of family. So they counted 5,000 men. Well, if you just had a wife and one child, which is probably not accurate, but a wife with one child, then it would have been 15,000. Folks, if it had been 50, I'd have had a hard time feeding them. But there were, there were thousands upon thousands. And so they were sizing up their supplies. And Philip said, basically, just forget about it. We can't do anything. Send them away. I'm afraid that in Christianity, we're, we're thinking, oh, what can I do? Well, what can one person do? I mean, what can one church do? Well, let's just send them away. Let's hope that somebody else, let's participate, but let's let somebody else do it. We size up the supplies. You know what we need to do is we need to upsize the Savior. In our mind, we got to quit thinking about Jesus the way that we do. We need to upsize the Savior. You've been to McDonald's and they come in, you want to upsize that? <laughs> you know, the truth is when we upsize our French fries, we're just upsizing ourselves, but I'm just going to go on from there. So upsize. So we need to upsize the Savior. We need to think differently about him. The disciples had seen three major miracles by now, the water into wine, the long distance healing of the nobleman's son, the raising of the paralytic. Not only that, but had they forgotten about the power of God even before they were called, whenever Peter, James, and John were in a little boat, went fishing, fished all night, caught nothing. And Jesus said, throw your net in on the other side, and they caught more fish than they could carry, than they could pull in. They were amazed. Have they forgotten the power of Jesus? We need to upsize our Savior. They were learning, but they still didn't understand the power and authority of Jesus. Jesus had done so many things. They didn't consider looking to Jesus 
They looked at themselves first. They looked in their pockets first. They looked among themselves. They started calculating. And I'm afraid as Christians, quite often we do that. Instead of our first resort is go to Jesus, the first thing we do is look at ourselves and see what we can do and see what we can give and see what, boy, we ought to everything, everything, we ought to go to Jesus first. They didn't, weren't even considering and thinking that one day the fingers of Jesus sprinkled billions of stars into the universe and ended up in the constellations. He spoke and the mighty oceans began to ebb and flow. He spoke and with a pinch of his fingers, he lifted the mighty Andes and the Himalayas to their lofty heights. And then he blew life into all of the creation of living things and he didn't even have to catch his breath when he got done. What's it like? Well, it's like needing to dig a pit and doing it with a spade when there's a backhoe sitting right there. It's like needing to down a mighty oak and trying to do it with a fingernail file instead of cranking up a 36 inch Husqvarna chainsaw. You see what I'm saying? In other words, we have capacity beyond us. How many of you believe Jesus is able? Do we ask him? Is he our last resort or is he where we begin? Do we look at the situation, the problem, or whatever it is that's in our life, or whether it's a corporate problem, or a family problem, or a personal problem, or a need, or a desire, or maybe you're building a business for Jesus, and you're doing it all on your own. Why not start with Jesus? Just start with a resource that never runs out. Start with Jesus. Upsize the Savior. Understand just how great he is. Now look, this true. There are problems too big for me to solve. Is that true? Are there problems in your life you can't fix all by yourself? Are there? Yes or no? Yeah. The disciples were reconciled to this. They reconciled their inability. They were well-versed in it. They probably had committees coming to that conclusion. Well, let's run a committee and we'll see what we, now nope, we can't do it. Jesus agrees because in John 15, 5, the second part, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, the Bible does say that apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. But there is no problem too big for Jesus to solve. None. Our personal problem presents him with no difficulty. What Philip did is what we do. We leave Jesus out of our calculations. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm coming to the end of my rope. I guess it's coming to prayer. Flip that over. I'm going to start with prayer. And you may never come to the end of your rope because Jesus' rope never runs out. So important. A guy named Scott Wesley Brown back in the 70s, and I don't, I don't want to bring this back other than just say he wrote a song that is so beautiful. There is no problem too big that God cannot solve it. There's no mountain too tall that God cannot move it. There's no storm too dark that God cannot solve it. And there's no sorrow too deep that God cannot soothe it. And if he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, I know, my brother and sister, that he will carry you. So what do we need to do? We need to do this. We don't need to compare our problems with your capacity. Don't do that. Don't compare your problems with your own capacity. Compare your problems to God's ability because there's just not anything too hard for the Lord. Listen to these various cases in the scripture, Genesis 18, 13, and 14. The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
What a beautiful verse. And then Jeremiah, I love this one. This whole passage is about Jeremiah being told, Jeremiah, I want you to, uh, I want you to go to your hometown. I want you to buy a piece of land. I want you to put the deed in a clay pot, bury it in the ground there because I'm here to tell you something. I'm here to tell you that even though Nebuchadnezzar is coming and he's going to sack Jerusalem, he's going to carry the people away. They're going to be there 70 years, but I'm making you a promise. They're coming back and this piece of land is going to be yours and your family's forever. I'm making you a promise. And here's how Jeremiah responded. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Again, in the same passage, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And to a little virgin in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, he said, Luke 137, for nothing is impossible with God. Is that just a, you know, cute Sunday school story or are we talking about the word of God and the promise of God? How many of you believe that nothing is too difficult for God? There's not anything too difficult for him. We need to stop sizing up our situations and start upsizing our savior. The Lord knew about the lad in verse nine, of course. He knew about the situation. He knew about the problem. He knew about the lad. In fact, before this world was ever ever began, the Bible says he knows everything. So while Philip was doing his calculations, here's Philip, he's calculating 200 denarii. Andrew was doing what Andrew did. He was out finding people. I love it. Folks, we're supposed to be finding family and finding friends to invite, invest, and include. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what this year, we've launched it in January. We've been talking about it all year. Invite, invest, include. Are there people in your life that you're doing that with? We're supposed to be finding people. This is what the kind of person that Andrew was. He, he went out finding people. He presented Jesus with a lad. Jesus knew the little boy was there and he knew what he was going to do with him. Jesus knew what he was trying to teach his disciples. This was about supplying food for the multitudes, but this physical example of food for the multitudes has got a spiritual application where he is supplying spiritual food, he himself, the bread of life to everyone in the world, but he's going to do it through his disciples. What a lesson, what a lesson. Jesus knew what he was trying to do. And here's, here's a couple of things about this little guy. He was nameless. Don't have his name. He was just a lad. He was a little boy. Greek word is paiderion, a mere child, maybe eight to 11 years old. Some people try to make great names for themselves, but Jesus tries to make great use of ordinary people. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we knew less famous pastors and we knew more about the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be great? If we knew more about him, listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. God uses ordinary people. And these 12 that became his first disciples were fishermen and zealots. And they just weren't of noble birth. The only one even possible was John, whose dad knew the high priest. Interesting story. He was nameless. He had no training. How many of us in our spiritual walk, well, I'd, you know, I'd help, I'd do something, I'd teach, I'd share the gospel, but I don't have any training. I, I might do it wrong, say it wrong, get it wrong. Let's, let me share something with you. 
giving out the gospel bread, sharing the good news of the gospel, telling about Jesus, sharing Jesus with other people. It's not about your expertise. It's about your willingness. And the power's in the gospel. It's not in the expert. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the expert. That's not what it's about. He had no, this little boy had no training. So many people, well, I might get it wrong. Listen, let me say it to you again. The only poor witness and the only poor gospel sharing is when we don't do it at all. He was nameless. He had no training. He had no experience. He didn't come and say, wait a minute, let me step to the front of the line here. You know, in my 11 years of life, I've done a lot. No, 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 no. What did he think like that? It was just a boy. He was there. (laughs) No training, no experience. But you know what? He was available, available, available. The greatest ability is availability. Here I am, Lord. Use me, said Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, speak, thy servant is listening, said little Samuel. What would you have me to do, said Saul, before he became Paul. There are no people too small for Jesus to use. There are just some people not very available. Not very many want to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. No, not many want to live for him who died for us. Not many. Why are there so few takers on this? Why are there so few that just trust Jesus, that he can do something with us that we could never do ourselves. Why? Well, we might think, well, what will Jesus do? What's he going to ask me to do? I don't know. I mean, he better, I got to know what it is before I volunteer for that. Well, that's not the way it works. We give our all to him. We give ourselves to him. We give everything to him. What will Jesus do with me? What will Jesus ask of me? Where will Jesus send me? In our most recent mission conference, it was amazing to hear Jody Appleby as she was talking. And she said, well, as I grew up in church and everything, and uh, we have talked a lot about missions and missionaries and, and everything. And, you know, I just wasn't available. I told the Lord, Lord, I'll do anything, but I don't want to leave the state and I don't want to be a foreign missionary. Well, she ended up leaving the state. She ended up being a missionary in Indonesia. How about that? And so she, after the fact, said, boy, I never knew what God could do with me once I gave him myself. It's an amazing thing. Where will Jesus send me? Here's a big one. If I give my all to Jesus, will there be anything for me? If I give myself to Jesus, will there be anything for me? I was just a little boy myself when the Lord tapped me on the shoulder. I was just turned 15 years old, been saved since I was 12. The Lord tapped me on the shoulder and I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Philip, I want you to do something. I want you to speak for me. I want you to go for me. I want you to spread the gospel for me. I want you to do that. I was just 15. Can I say something to you? I could have never planned for myself what God had planned for me. I could have never had the encounters and done what God has given me the privilege to do in my life if I'd have planned it myself. Oh, God is so good. If I give my all to Jesus, will there be anything left for me? Oh, yes. God can do a lot more than you than you can plan to do for yourself. The Bible is full of stories of little people doing big things. Why, there's Gideon, (laughs) Gideon of the smallest family of the smallest tribe and the smallest clan. And God did great things with him and his 300. Then there's that widow lady at Zarephath who had a few sticks and a little oil and meal and she was going to make her last meal and die. And Elijah said, put me first, make me one first, put God first. She did it and God took care of her for many, many days. Then there was the captive Jewish maid in the house of Naaman, had been robbed from her home as a little girl and carried away and forced to work. 
in the home of Naaman. Naaman, who was the captain of the army of the Aramaeans. And there he was. And, and so there she was. And Naaman got leprosy. Well, instead of hating him, she said, oh, would God that my master would go to one of the prophets in Israel so that he could be healed of his leprosy. Little person, no name, doing great things. And then, of course, there's a little woman that brought two mites, two small copper coins, almost so small you can't see them, and put them in the offering plate in the temple. And then there's this little boy. So many more. You know what? The Lord knew about the problem. The Lord knew about the lad. And the boy knew about the lunch. The Lord knew about the lunch. Verse 9. It says there were five barley loaves and two small fishes. And, and what Andrew said is, is, but what are they among so many? There's a little picture I want you to see if you just look up here at this. and see if, uh, let's, let's see if they can put this pick up there. There it is. Five little barley loaves and two small fish. About the size of my smoked herring here. Two small fish, five little barley loaves. There were, barley was the cheapest of grains. The fish were small and diminutive. Uh, the little boy's mom had cared to send him out knowing that for some reason she didn't go, but she sent him out with a little sack lunch, so to speak. And he had five little buns and a couple of small fish. And here are the facts. Make sure we get the facts as long as those five buns and those two little fish were in his hands, they were not going to go very far. As long as they were in his sack, long as they were under his possession, long as he was holding on to it, he could have taken tweezers and plucked a grain and maybe gave everybody a speck, but that's all he could do. But as long as it was in, listen, as long as you're in your own hands, as long as you're, on, you're under, your, under your own control, as long as you've never climbed up into Jesus' hands and say, here I am, send me, here I am, use me, Lord, what would you have me to do? As long as it's like that, and as long as you try to serve the Lord of your own self with your own ability, you're not going to be able to accomplish much. But once this little sack lunch, five little buns and a couple of fish among that multitude of people represented by the hands outstretched, once they were in Jesus' hands, they didn't just meet the need, they were bounded. You know, we, do you know that we serve and we are, in the, we are in the service of an almighty abounding God? Do you know God doesn't run out? He never runs out. And so... It was put in Jesus' hands. And so there's some stuff we got to learn here. And that is that God knows where we are. God knows what we have. The widow had a little meal and oil and she fed Elijah and herself for many days. Moses had a stick and with it he confronted Pharaoh. And Shamgar had an ox goad. And what did he do with it but deliver Israel? See, God knows what he can do with us and with what we have. He knows what he can do. God can do amazing things. And finally, I want you to see this. The Lord knows what we need to learn. He knows what we need to learn, verses 10 to 14. So let's think about this. The people had a problem. A lad had a lunch. And Jesus had the lad. If, I don't, if, if you didn't hear anything else I say, if you don't hear anything else from this point today, what I just said may be the most important thing. The people had a need... The lad had a lunch, and the Lord had the lad. And the Lord has very little access to what we have and to what we can do in our lives because we do not serve him as if he is Lord of all. Does he have you? I have to pull over to ask this. 
Does the Lord have you, all of you? Is he truly Lord? Jesus will never have access to your talents and your treasures until he has all of you, until he is the king of your heart. Are you looking for that problem-solving Jesus, the fix-up, the mess-ups kind of Jesus? Are you looking for that Jesus who gives you what you want when you want it? I have to say this, I think the greatest issue facing modern Christianity is rooted in the idea that Jesus is our servant and supplier instead of our Savior and our Lord. Modern Christianity wants to talk about what Jesus have you done for me lately? Well, when he stretched out his hands and said it is finished, he'd done everything. Do you understand? It's not about what supply, what are you going to, no, 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 it's not about that. It's you are Lord and I give myself totally to you. You know, you can be, you can trust Jesus with yourself. Did you know that? Isn't it amazing? We trust him with our eternity. We just don't trust him with the present. All of you, have you given him all of you? We're going to learn next week that he wants no part of being a king in a kingdom where people only come to him because he gave them something to eat, bread. Let's think about what Jesus wanted to teach. He wanted them to understand that Jesus receives what we give him. Look at verse number 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down and there was much grass. In other words, he received what was given to him. I want to say this to you. Never dismiss your contribution, your efforts, your labor of love is insignificant. The widow's two mites hit the bottom of the offering plate in Jerusalem and the sound is still ringing around the world today. The woman who anointed Jesus' feet with the nard, the expensive ointment, she broke that alabaster box and gave it all and we are still talking about her today. Jesus receives what we give him. The next thing is Jesus multiplies what we give him. Jesus gave thanks to the Father for what he had received. What a concept, gratitude, thanksgiving. It's not insignificant. It's mentioned again in verse number 23 when he describes this at another time. He says, look, this is the place where I prayed for the food and passed it out. He mentions I gave thanksgiving. He was thankful for it. His supply never runs dry. He supplied five large jars of wine at the wedding. He told the woman at the well, look, I'm not just going to give you a drink. I'm going to make you a fountain that's flowing to other people. I'm going to supply more than the need. It doesn't matter that it was a small lunch. Once it was in Jesus' hands, it was more than enough. And I just want to say to you, it doesn't matter. It does not matter who you are, what you can do, or what you have. Once you're in Jesus' hands, it makes all the difference. Jesus can do more with you than what you can do with yourself. Disciples then distribute what Jesus supplies. That's what they do. Set them down in groups of 150. That comes from the synoptics. Come and get the bread and then pass it out. Just come and get it and pass it out. And when you run out, come back, get more and keep passing it out. I've also often asked myself if they would have passed out the first amount of bread and not gone back and everybody stopped, would the supply of bread have stopped? Do we keep going to Jesus? Do we keep telling the story, sharing it with people? Do we just keep going, keep praying, Lord, give me bread so that I can give it to them. Help me, enable me, open my mouth, open my, open my ability, Lord, so that I can share. There's going to be enough. Folks, we are in the bread business. The bread comes from heaven. We are in the distribution business, not the production business. We can't produce spiritual bread. You can't do it. You cannot produce it. Only God can. But what we can do is keep going to him, taking this spiritual truth and keep passing 
it out. Let's get this straight. We go to Jesus for the spiritual supply and we distribute to those people who are in need. So I have to stop and ask at this point. I just have to stop and ask, is your salvation and your Christianity, how many of your believers in the Lord Jesus? Just raise your hand. All right, wonderful. Is your salvation just about you? Is it about your destiny and that's it? Is it about your security and where you're headed? Is your salvation just one of these situations where it's just me and Jesus got a good thing going and I just, you know, it's private. My, 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 my situation with Jesus and my relationship with it's a private situation. I got a personal savior. Wonderful. He's a personal savior, but he's not private. It's never supposed to be private. You see, the grace of God has come to you so the grace of God can flow through. You remember the woman at the well? I mean, it's in the same book. We just got done studying it. It wasn't about the woman getting a drink of water. It was about the woman becoming a living fountain. And what did she do the very same day that she found Jesus? She went up and said, hey, come meet a man that told me everything that I ever did. She couldn't shut up about her Savior. Let me ask you a question. You name the name of Jesus. You know him as your personal savior. Does the name of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, or your relationship with him ever come up in a conversation outside of where you already know the person is a believer like at church, or does it come up in your daily life? Because see, that's passing out the gospel bread. We are, does it come up? Come on, I'm not picking on you. I'm just asking you a question. Does the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of his grace, does it ever come up outside of a Bible class, small group, church service, or among people who already know him? You see, that's our purpose. You say, I'm, just, I'm not trained. I don't have any experience. You mean kind of like the little guy? It's not about that. It's about, I have received freely and freely I give. I have received from him and I'm so thrilled. I want to tell others about him. Oh, how important, how incredibly, incredibly important this is. Disciples distribute. And then Jesus takes care of his distributors. Little boy didn't go without Friends, let's not approach God with the idea of scarcity. God is abundant in his supply. He neither changed, he did not change the barley loaves into cheesecake, nor did he change the fish into caviar, but he supplied the need and he supplied it abundantly. God's not going to supply our greeds. He is going to supply our needs. You understand? In other words, he supplied abundantly. And there were 12 baskets, specifically says there were 12 baskets left over. One for each disciple, maybe, or maybe for each of the 12 tribes, or maybe really cool, 12 baskets put on a little wagon that the little boy took home to mama and said, hey, mama, look what I had left over from lunch. I wanted to go a little further with this, but next, the next section contains the next sign, but I have to stop and ask you, are you afraid to give Jesus your everything? You're a believer. You've got this destiny thing settled. Your sins are covered. There's redemption in the blood of Jesus and you've received the forgiveness of sins. Praise the Lord, but is, it, is that it? He has saved you to be your Lord. He has saved you to be your all in all. He has saved you to be one of his disciples and to help him pass out the bread of life the good news of the gospel. 
Are you afraid to give Jesus your everything? Afraid you won't have enough? Afraid you will lose yourself? Afraid God will ask you to do something that you don't want to do? I can promise you this, that God is only going to ask you to do that for which he created you to do. You'll never be fulfilled until you give him all. You will never be, you will never be fulfilled until you give him all. You will never be satisfied until you give him all. Give him all. He is Lord.